Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Hello, everybody, and what's up? Welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. Well, listen, today, um, I kind of want to venture off into, I was trolling through the internet and found a couple of clips from Milton Friedman. I used to listen to Milton Friedman all the time on YouTube, and I would encourage uh, people to do that if you're if you're a little bit on the nerdy side. I mean, he's actually a very entertaining speaker, and he has a really unique way of making points. And uh, for, for years, he operated a program on television called Free to Choose. And some of the um, some of the YouTube videos are based on those episodes. And some of them are just him giving talks to um, various uh, crowds. And uh, anyway, he, he talks about uh, a lot of different things online. Uh, but this particular segment that I was listening to has to do with um, some myths that... Um, that are told uh, in you know in our history classes and economics classes things like that 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 are that are very damaging uh, because it doesn't uh, it leads us to the same kinds of actions the next time we have uh, similar types of uh, scenarios happen and um, two of the myths I'd like to talk about today uh, are the robber baron myth. And the Great Depression myth, what caused the Great Depression, and I might even expound on it a little bit and talk about uh, the myth that uh, that somehow World War II got us out of the Great Depression, even. And so, these are these are myths that are deeply, deeply embedded in our uh, in our political discourse, our historical understanding of uh, the way the country was founded, the way it progressed. And why, and, and and also why we need, or what what the justification was for various government interventions. For example, the robber barons is a big one. You know, the robber baron myth basically led to uh, uh, a progressive income tax. It led to antitrust legislation. Uh, it led to a whole bunch of things, and it was just it's just a myth. I mean. It didn't happen the way they said it happened, and they um, they used that premise to develop uh, these policies and, and embed these policies in our uh, in our uh, governmental system. So myths that uh, that persist in our uh, political discourse are uh, are taught in uh, schools, uh, whether they be public schools or <clears throat> private institutions, colleges, and uh, universities. These are very damaging because people, it goes on to inform people um, uh, in a particular set of set of actions that don't address the problem. So I think it's important to communicate these and, and make sure people understand these. And certainly, I would encourage you to go to listen to all five of the myths that uh, Milton Friedman discusses. Uh, but we're going to talk today about two of them. Again, the uh, robber baron myth and the myth of the Great Depression and who created it and why it persisted and what got us out of the Great Depression. In the past 50 years or so, with respect to the role of the individual on the one hand and the role of government and collective institutions on the other, 
There has been a shift in the philosophy and attitudes of the public from a belief in individual responsibility, from a belief in a society in which the role of government was as an umpire, to a belief in a society in which the emphasis is on social responsibility and the role of government as big brother and protector of the individual. You know, I think if you've been paying attention at all, you agree with this comment that uh, Milton Friedman is making here. There's been a a shift, um, a crowding out, if you will, of the understanding, the uh, accepting the responsibility of individual uh, liberty and individual responsibility. Um, if you want to have individual rights, you have to have individual responsibility. And that shift has led, has been leaning more toward government. You know, what is government going to do for me? And, you know, this is, uh, if you listen to John F. Kennedy's famous speech, you know, where he says, um, where he asks the question, uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Now, the second part of that, you know, what you can do for your country I don't, I don't know that you need to do anything for your country. You know, if you're a productive citizen and you're producing goods and services or uh, as, as a part of employment, and, I mean, that's, that's really what you need to do for your country. I mean, um, participate in your community, participate in the market, uh, not break the laws. Those are the types of things. But um, there's no doubt that there's been a shift away from this individual responsibility, individual um, focus in general, focus on the individual to the collective and the social responsibility of government. What, what role does government have to take care of its citizens and this kind of thing? And years ago, I used to, uh, my, my big problem with this is that the government can't hold people accountable, can't hold individuals accountable or even groups really. Uh, it's only means to do that is to throw people in jail. But there's a whole range of accountability that that uh, that people are subject to as part of you know living. And uh, you know if you're if you're an employed person, you're you're accountable to your boss, you're accountable to the company, you're accountable. You know you're you can you can almost create any scenario where you're accountable to somebody or some group. Uh, it's just part of doing life. But this is impossible for the government to actually exercise. And I, I used to tell this story where, let's say I, I loan my neighbor $5,000 because he's lost his job, he's not doing well, and his family's suffering a little bit. And, you know, a couple months go by, and he's, I, as far as I'm concerned, he's still down on his luck or whatever. But I see him roll up into his driveway, and he's got a new 60-inch TV. Well, you know, my, my thinking is I need to go over there and get my five grand back, right? Because he's clearly back on his feet. Otherwise, he wouldn't be buying a 60-inch TV. Now, that level of accountability, the government cannot, cannot offer. And so it, it's irresponsible for us as a, as a nation, as a community, to, uh, to be taxed or uh, to allow ourselves to be taxed um, for these types of things because it just – it just welcomes fraud and abuse and, and that kind of thing. In my opinion, if we do not do so, if we continue on the road we have been going, if we continue to rely more and more on government and less and less on the individual, we are condemned to a future of tyranny and misery. 
And therefore, it seems to me essential for the future of this country that we recognize these myths for what they are and adjust our thinking to a correct perception of our present and our past. I'm uh, uh, encouraged in this venture by another quotation, one which comes from a 19th century American humorist by the name of Josh Billings, who wrote, wrote somewhere, it ain't what people know that causes trouble, it's what they know that ain't so. And that's what I'm going to devote this talk to, to trying to tell you about some things you know that ain't so. Yes, you guys hear me all the time use the word liberty and tyranny. In fact, if you look at the show logo, there's a little scale where liberty's on one side and tyranny's on the other. And essentially, the scales tip in the favor of tyranny the more you give to government to do. So the more government does the more force it has to exert on the population in order to carry out what it does. And, you know, Milton Freeman's right. You know, what we know is not the problem. It's what we know that ain't so. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of misinformation about how the country evolved, about uh, what the purpose of certain uh, pieces of the Constitution are supposed to protect. There's, There's a lot of that in our public discourse and we're just going to have to re-educate ourselves. We're going to have to understand that we went through more or less an indoctrination process in the public school system and that a lot of what we know or what we think we know just ain't so. Let me start with the first of those myths, the robber baron myth. The myth that in the 19th century was a period in which the rich became richer and the poor poorer. That it was a century in which you had a conflict between Wall Street and the working man, that it was a period in which particularly the farmers of the Middle West were being ground beneath the rapacious activities of the Wall Street financiers, in which there was widespread farm distress and misery. Now, I know we all have heard of the robber barons and and are familiar with this myth. Everybody knows who Andrew Carnegie is and um, everybody knows who uh, the Morgans, about the Morgan family, uh, J. Pierpont Morgan. Um, everybody's heard of uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller. These are, these are the faces of the robber barons. And isn't it true? Isn't it true that the way Milton Freeman just described it is the way we learned it, more or less, that, that these people plundered America for their own benefit? And, and, and got wealthy and we couldn't tax them because there was no income tax and there was no, there was no way to get that money back for the people and all this. I mean, that's, that's what we learned about all this. The reality is that there is almost no period in human history which saw as rapid and widespread an increase in the well-being of the ordinary man as the 19th century. That was a period when millions of people from all over the world streamed to these shores, they came here with empty hands in the hope and the belief that they could make a better life for themselves and their children, and they succeeded. Yeah, this period in American history is generally ver- referred to as the Gilded Age. And uh, some of the things that happened in this, in this uh, 100 years is real wages went up fourfold. 
four four times four x. That's that's an amazing thing. Um, products, uh, massive numbers of products were created uh, during this. A lot of it was created initially for the farms. You know, tractors. You know, John Deere and um, Caterpillar and companies like that were created during this time. I mean, this is just a tremendously. The railroads were created not by government, by but by these tycoons, and um, it, it's just an. It was an interesting time, uh, in a in a time of massive, massive prosperity for not just John D. Rockefeller and um, people like that, uh, the Vanderbilts and uh, those kinds of people, but for their average person. Your average person was just on the poverty line from you know, for much of, uh, human history up to that point. And so this was an extraordinary time and, and it's something we should be proud of, not, not ashamed of. I, uh, my parents came here in the 1890s from a part of Europe, which is today part of the Soviet Union, although at that time it was part of Hungary. And I suspect most of the people in this room have similar backgrounds. Now, do you suppose those people kept coming to these shores in order to be exploited? Do you think they came here to be ground under the heels of rapacious monopoly capitalists? Not a bit of it. A few people might have been led here under misapprehension. You conceivably could have had an initial inflow of people who thought they were going to improve their lot and ended up being worse off. But you would not have had a continuing inflow. They would not have sent back to the old country for their relatives and friends. You would not have had a flow of millions upon millions year after year. So there's a there's a, a principle in Austrian economics. Um, well, there's a there's a whole philosophy called praxeology, but essentially what it boils down to is that people act, people do things for their their own self interest. Um, they eat when they're hungry, they travel when they want to go somewhere. You know, whatever. I mean, these are kind of simple ideas, but but this is what uh, uh, Milton Friedman's talking about here. You know, we had waves of, of, of immigrants come over, right? And so many of them were, you know, follow-ups to the initial people that came over. And he's right. Those people wouldn't have come over if, if, if the people that were already here weren't telling them, hey, man, it's great. You got to get over here now, you know? So uh, this is, it's always important to look and see what people do rather than what they say. Because what they say, people say all kinds of things, but what what it is that they do, they do uh, out of self-interest. And they have um, real goals they're trying to accomplish out of stuff, stuff that they actually do. What happened then, of course, was that the spread of farms, increasing productivity, the development of machinery, the bringing under the plow of productive land, led to a great increase in production, which led to a decline in the prices of farm products. So it's true, the prices of farm products went down. But that was a sign of success. It was not a sign of failure. If this decline in the price of products had been a sign of failure, if it had been an indication that the farmer was being ground under the heel of Wall Street, why would people have been willing to pay higher and higher prices for the land from which those crops were produced? So the actual story is one of a great growth of productivity in agriculture, a great development of agriculture in this country. Yeah, and as I mentioned, um, the growth in agriculture uh, g- culture led to 
um, uh, improvements uh, that happened during the Industrial Revolution, uh, farm products, tractors, things like that, Caterpillar, companies like that. And, of course, people, some people left the farms to go work for those companies and work on the assembly line that was created in, uh, in, uh, uh, in the U.S. by Henry Ford. And so this was just a tremendous time of prosperity, and uh, the evidence just doesn't bear out the story of the robber barons. The period when we came the closest we've ever come to pure, unrestrained individualism, a period when government spending, the spending of the federal government in Washington, amounted to less than 3% of the national income, when essentially you had no restrictions on immigration, and few restrictions on economic activity. Let me point out that that was also the period of the greatest flowering of charitable activity in the United States. That was a period when you had the establishment of so many independent private schools and colleges around the country. It was a period when the private, non-profit, eleemosynary hospitals grew and sprouted in every city in the land. It was a period of the Carnegie Libraries. It was a period of the founding of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. You name it, and you will find that the charitable eleemosynary activities date back to the period of the 19th century. Yeah, so, so often, you know, uh, these robber barons are described as, you know, they were just they would just dump their money on the floor and swim around in it or something. You know, that's kind of the... Tom Woods likes to talk about the fat guy with the glasses holding the money bag with the dollar signs on it. So the robber barons kind of gave people this, this idea of what, you know, kind of a caricature idea of what, you know, rich people did. But, uh, you know, Milton Freeman points out that, no, this, this period of time was, was a very generous time. Uh, you had uh, Carnegie uh, at the time was the richest man in the world, and he didn't just, you know, sail around the world and spend all his money. I mean, he, he, his name lives on today. You can watch public TV and you'll hear Carnegie mentioned, uh, a lot of the he, Carnegie Mellon university uh, libraries. He created libraries all across the country. Libraries didn't even exist, uh, which led to people, you know, the lowering the illiteracy rate and just all this stuff, the hospitals he mentioned today, you have, all these the hospital system exists today because of that time period. It was all created with with donations from these wealthy people that uh, you know created Methodist Hospital and um, uh, you know most of them have um, Memorial Hospital things like that. Most of them have uh, religious names because those are the those are the organizations that um, ran those for the for the longest time. So this was a, a tremendous time of wealth creation. And standard of living increase, and also just vast uh, charitable actions. So the robber baron myth is a myth, one that should be deflated. It gets its appeal from a common fallacy, from the fallacy that one man's gain must be another man's loss. Of course it is true that many men became wealthy during that period. There were robber barons. There always are robber barons. People are people. Some are good, some are bad, some are in between. And of course, some people did try to mistreat other people. That is part of the course of history, unfortunately. But 
The main part of the story is that the process whereby some people became wealthy was also the process which opened up the country and provided opportunities for millions of other people to have a modest competence to be able to improve their own lot. It was the robber barons who, who were instrumental in building the railroads that joined the country together, who were instrumental in developing the industries of this country, and in thereby providing the opportunities for the ordinary man to improve his lot on life. Everybody can benefit. You can have some people become wealthy, not at the expense of other people, but by enabling other people to become wealthy. So the discussion about robber barons is not whether or not people got wealthy. That's, that's a point of fact. That Yes, people got tremendously wealthy. Um, but they got wealthy by providing goods and services to a vast number of people that improve their lot in life. And that's, that's what we call an increase of standard of living. Now, keep in mind, there was no fiat currency. We were on a gold standard. Um, banks were just banks. You know, they actually kept money in the bank. Uh, in fact, if you watch movies, you'll find out that people robbed banks during that time. Um, but this all happened just out of cooperation between some people that were willing to take massive amounts of risks and other people that were willing to work for them and help them be successful, not for their benefit, not for the robber baron's benefit, but for their own benefit. Okay. So this, this was a huge win-win for the country, uh, for the rich people, for the people that improved their lot in life and vast numbers of people during this time, uh, you know, started off on farms, but then started moving uh, toward the latter part of this period, started moving back into cities and places where some of these goods and services were being produced later. We had robber barons then and we have robber barons today. But there's a big difference between the robber barons then and the robber barons today. The robber barons then primarily could get their money only if people freely gave it to them. They got their money by selling a service, and nobody had to buy it. And if people bought it, it was because it was a better service than it was before. The robber barons today are in large part able to get their money by sending a policeman to take the money out of your pocket. Now, that's a figurative expression, not a literal expression. But how do you become wealthy today? By getting government assistance or by getting any one of a large variety of other uh, of other sources of government support. If you look at where modern wealth comes from, it almost always comes from political influence, which enables you to get benefits at the expense of the public at large. Yeah, so we've talked about this in, in detail, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this, but this is the lobbying process, right? This is, this is where uh, companies today hire lobbyists um, to go twist the arms of lawmakers and promise to get them reelected and things like that. If they'll write into the law, you know, some advantage that the company has over its competition. And this is what Milton Friedman is talking about. And this is, uh, this is a form of theft. Basically, he, he basically calls it that, that, and it is that because anytime the law is, is written in a way that forces you to do something by light bulb A over light bulb B, for example, 
GE. I mean, major corporations are guilty of this, okay? And this is the difference between today and those days of yesteryear during the, the, uh, the Gilded Age in the uh, 19th century. So, you know, this is an important, important distinction. Uh, you know, a lot of times people, these guys that run these corporations today will talk about Rockefeller or Carnegie and, and try to compare themselves to them. They are not those people. These people are living, you know, off the proceeds of the government trough in, in, in some degree. Now, not 100%, okay, but if you know anybody that has a small company, let's say you let's say you have a neighbor that has a small business, maybe, maybe it's not even that small, maybe it's $10 million a year, go over and ask them who their lobbyist is. They'll look at you like you're crazy. Like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I don't have a lobbyist. That's right. They don't have a lobbyist. But these companies that are, you know, billion-dollar companies or $10 billion companies or $100 billion companies, they have armies of lobbyists. And some of that is to keep government off their back, but a lot of it is to to advantage them somehow in the marketplace so that you can, it's easier for you to give them money. Now that is a zero-sum game. When the money is transferred from some to others through force and coercion in the taxpayer, then it need not be that the one man's benefit is also the other man's benefit. Then it can and often is that both parties, uh, that, that the party who gains, gains at the expense of the party who pays. Yeah, and if it's not a win-win, if it's, if it's one person gains and one person loses, more times than not, government is acting as the broker, and there's some legal reason why that exists the way it does. Um, that's, that's the key thing to look for. And, and when I say legal, I, I mean regulatory. It could be regulatory. It could be a law. It could be, um, it could be buried in the Affordable Care Act in page, you know, 1,643 in a, in a small paragraph. I mean, these types of things are in these massive laws. I mean, they're basically big goody lists for these major corporations. So robber barons will always be with us. The crucial question is whether we have a form of economic organization in which one robber baron keeps the other robber baron in check or whether we have a form of economic and political organization in which one robber baron can help the other robber baron at the expense of the public. Yeah, so as smart as Milton Friedman is, he didn't invent this concept. I've, I've introduced this concept before on the program, and it was introduced in the 1850s by a guy named Frederick Bastiat. And he said the purpose of the law was to protect liberty and property. And then if you produced laws that did anything other than protect liberty and property, then you get a perversion of the law that would lead to the few plundering um, uh, the many or everybody plundering everybody. And today, that's what we have. That's We have a society where everybody goes to Washington, everybody that has the means uh, to go to Washington, goes to Washington to get their cut. And, and that comes at the expense of all of us. I want to turn to the second of these myths, the Great Depression myth. There is hardly any view that is more widespread than the view that somehow or other the Great Depression was produced by a failure of private business. That view is held not only by those who are in favor of greater role of government, it is held by almost everybody. 
I venture to suggest that if you go to any bankers, the people who are here today at this banking conference, and if you talk to them, I venture to say nine out of ten of them, if, if, if they didn't, hadn't heard what I'm going to say, <laughs> that nine out of ten of them would say, well, of course, the Great Depression was a failure of private business. It was due to an overextension, overspeculation in the 1920s, or it was due to an excessive concentration of wealth in the hands of the wealthy at the expense of the poor in the 1920s, or it was due to speculative investment abroad, or whatnot. But it was a failure of private business, and government had to step in in order to rescue private business from its own failure. Nothing could be farther from the truth. It almost sounds like Milton Friedman here is talking about the headlines uh, in the run-up to the financial crisis that happened in 2008. Um, the story is always the same, that the private economy created this problem, and we, the wise government overlords, need to come in and, and solve the problem. The, prob the, the thing that people don't understand, and maybe some of, you, some of you already understand this, and I'm preaching to the choir, but that's fine. The choir needs preaching too, uh, is that the government creates a lot of these problems and then tries to come in and fix them. And the, a lot of times the way they fix them makes the problem worse. And you're going to hear, hear Milton Friedman talk about how they made the problem worse. But that's, that's the problem with letting a myth like that persist, is it informs solutions that don't work and often make the problem worse. The Great Depression was produced, in my opinion, and I may say this is a, not a random opinion. I will be glad to refer you to a several hundred page book in which it is documented. I won't tell you who the author is. <laughs> Mr. Eccles did that. It was produced, the Great Depression was produced by a failure of government, by a failure of monetary policy. It was produced by a failure of the Federal Reserve System to act in accordance with the intentions of those who established it. That's right. The Federal Reserve created the Great Depression. They expanded the monetary base beyond, well, I mean, we, I think we've talked about that expanding the monetary base is not even a good thing in and of itself. But if you expand it beyond uh, the, the country's ability to produce, and th this creates a lot of problems. It creates inflation. Uh, it can create, uh, it can create uh, money going into channels that are not actually what the economy needs. So maybe the economy need maybe there's top 10 things that the economy needs, but money is going into other things because they're quicker investments or whatever. There's uh, a good example is, and this is a true story. I knew an engineer that worked in California back in uh, 2007, 2008, and he was, he was resigning. And I said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to go into the house flipping business. So you can just imagine if you just extrapolate that and, and start, you know, a bunch of engineers uh, start leaving whatever profession they're in and, and go flip houses. Well, then you can see that money, investment, and, and all of a sudden there's going to be, there's going to, at some point, there's going to be a cost to that, right? Because we don't have the right people in engineering jobs. It could be that buildings fall down or pipes crack or electricity grids fail or whatever. There's, these are, this is the consequence of, of directing money 
in ways that are not driven by the free market. They're driven by government interest and government influence. It's interesting to speculate for a moment about why this myth is so widespread. The answer is really very simple in this case. Private enterprise has no press agents. The free market has no press agents. The government has a great many press agents. The Federal Reserve has a great many press agents. And the Federal Reserve, of course, would never admit, never proclaim that it produced the Great Depression. On the contrary. And again, I don't mean to be criticizing individuals. We're talking about the way institutions operate. Well, personally, I'm okay with criticizing individuals because, you know, everybody needs to do what they think is right in their job, whatever their job is. Just because it's buried in some government institution doesn't give you uh, a pass on acting ethically and and uh, according to you know uh, kind of the intention of 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 the institution. So I do, I do blame people. I'm, I'm I don't. I'm not as gracious as Milton Friedman is here, but but the point is that it's kind of like the lobbyist point. You know, uh, the government has a lot of mouthpieces that are constantly, you know, talking about you know how wise their decisions are, and they kind of co-opt the media, especially today. They co-opt the media, and the media parrots their talking points and. And all this, and if you go to somebody who owns their own business or somebody who's working for somebody and say, you know, who's your, who's your publicist <laughs> or who's your lobbyist? I mean, they're going to look at you like you're crazy because they don't have the additional resources to hire a publicist or a lobbyist, but the government steals its resources from us. And of course, it, in, it takes some of those resources and invest them in lobbyists and, well, not lobbyists, but uh, publicists, people that are that are talking heads uh, that, that act and, and uh, speak on the behalf of the government interest. Even at the depth of the Depression in 1933, when in the spring of that year, the Federal Reserve System, which had been established in order to prevent banking panics and keep banks from closing, when the Federal Reserve System itself closed its doors, and you had a banking holiday for seven days. And when, over the previous three years, a third of the banks of this country closed their doors and went broke because, in my opinion, of the poor policy followed by the Federal Reserve System. Even in 1933, if you read the annual report, you will discover how much worse things would have been if the Federal Reserve hadn't behaved so well. I just think this is funny because, you know, the speech that uh, Milton Friedman is giving took place in the '60s, and it's it, nothing has changed. It's the exact same way today. We hear about how were how bad the financial crisis of 2008 would have been if we didn't have you know Ben Bernanke, uh, you know, running the Federal Reserve, and he saved us all and all this craziness. It's it's just the same old thing over and over and over again, but. You know, what I want to say about it, if, if clearly we had a failure of the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve was designed to create or to stop banking panics, which caused banks to fail and go out of business. And in this short three year period, a third of the banks in the country failed and went out of business. Shouldn't we be getting rid of the Federal Reserve? I mean, you know, 
there's a bigger question going on here. You know, when, when things don't work, how do we get rid of these government policies? They just, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger and we can't seem to get rid of them. And, uh, I think structurally we need to come up with some ideas that help, help us get rid of these things. Maybe, maybe when they're enacted, uh, we have a sunset law after five years, you know, so that it automatically goes away. That's how they did the first bank of the United States, right? Is a, basically it had a charter and the charter had an expiration date on it. And, and when, uh, when the charter expired, they didn't renew it. And so that was the end of the bank. Um, maybe we need to do that in this country with, with laws and institutions that are created out of government. So the great depression was not produced by a failure of business. On the contrary, it was produced by a failure of government and a failure of government in an area in which responsibility had been assigned to government since the founding of this country. The Constitution of the United States it gives Congress the power to coin money and set the value thereof. And it was in the management of this fundamental function of government that government failed and produced the Great Depression. We have learned from that failure. The Federal Reserve will not fail in the same way again. This time it will fail in a different way. <laughs> this time it has been failing, not by producing a Great Depression, but by producing an inflation. Because just as you will hear the story that it was business that was responsible for the Depression, so you will today hear the story that it is labor and management that are responsible for inflation. It is the same kind of a myth. Yeah, so I think it's important to point out that uh, government is always trying to fight the last war. So what they do is if they have a, a failure uh, that, that happens in a particular way, then they go create a bunch of laws and regulations to make sure that that never happens again. But then as Milton Friedman points out, they just fail in a different way because people are people and incentives are incentives. And these are these, these types of systems run counter to the way people act. And so um, the other thing he talks about is um, inflation. And he talks about how no matter what happens, um, the free market gets blamed corporations get blamed people that run those corporations get blamed and i'm going to i'm going to do another program on inflation because i think it's so important for people to understand and it's so important to knock down the myths but i have uh, saved um uh from joy reed on msnbc talking about inflation and she has this young lady on and they're basically saying that it's caused by corporations you know, and they, and they, the evidence they give for that is they're listening to these earnings calls and all the, all the, um, corporate CEOs are talking about, yeah, you know, we've got some price raising power and, you know, so we're raising prices and our earnings are still good and all that kind of stuff. But the reason they're doing that is not because they want to make more money for the shareholders, they're doing that because the inputs into their business are increasing in cost and they have to raise those prices in order to offset the cost on the inputs to their business. But Joy Reid just looks at it like, oh, they're just greedy. Anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to do a program on it and I'm going to play a lot of clips from it because it's, it, it, it speaks directly to what we're talking about here. Inflation is made in one place and one place only, Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C., the chief source 
immediate source of inflation is a Greek temple on Constitution Avenue, in which, which houses the Federal Reserve Board. An accomplice, and a major accomplice, of course, sits in the halls of Congress in Washington. They are a major accomplice because you tell them to be. The American people have been telling Congress for many years, spend more money on us, please. But they've been telling us, don't raise our taxes. Congress has been listening. It's been spending more money on you. But on the other hand, it's been very unwilling to raise taxes. As a result, it has imposed inflation as a tax. That's one tax that you don't have to vote for, but you have to pay. That's right, inflation. You don't get to vote on inflation, but you do have to pay it. And, um, you know, I think the thing that to pull away from here, one of the things I think about when I hear this line of reasoning, anytime I've ever spoken to anybody about any kind of political subject, something that's going on in the in the political environment, you know, my arguments are usually pretty good, so they give up pretty quickly. But the way they give up is they'll say something to the effect of, I don't know, but we need to do something. And that we need to do something is, and what they mean by that is, I, I don't know, I don't fully understand it, but the government needs to do something. We, the government, need to do something. And this is this is what leads to the situation that, that uh, in my opinion, that uh, that Milton Friedman described here, where we where we tell them, look, we want we want government to do more things for us, but don't raise our taxes. This is this is how you get there, right? Because there are some people out there, but it's a very small percentage that are that want these services from government and are willing to pay for them, but the vast majority of them want them and don't want to pay for them, and so you get this situation where we just end up paying in the form of inflation or uh, higher debt levels that eventually we'll have to pay or our future posterity will have to pay. All right, well, listen, that's about it for the program today. Uh, I thought this was very good. Listen, go out and listen to Milton Freeman. I think you'll really like He's a very entertaining speaker. He's There's some clips uh, with him on Donahue that are really entertaining, and he takes questions from the audience and I think it's something most people would really like. I mean, he was he was somebody that could relate to the average American, and and uh, it's very entertaining, very uh, informative. And so, you know, go out and listen to Milton Freeman. Go out and listen to Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams. All these guys are really really good. And there's tons of stuff on the internet uh, about them and that they uh, programs that they've spoke in or speeches they've given. So listen, if you like the show, please share it. Share it to somebody. Just uh, you know, share it in your text or something like that. If you like it a lot, go out and write a positive review for me on your whatever your podcasting catcher is. Uh, if you don't like it, just don't listen to it. Don't go out and write a negative review if you don't mind. But uh, keep coming back. Keep listening. I'll try to put some interesting content in on here for you to listen to while you're driving your car. Inflation is made in one place and one place only, Washington, D.C.,